Hey everybody, Aaron Bishop here. Just wanted to let you know, I have written a book. It has been published and it is available now on Amazon.com. Name of the book is The Power of Passover, A Christian's Guide to the Festival of Redemption. If you want to know what Passover is about, just a really deep dive into the festival, into its history, and into why we're where we're at today. And even an instruction guide on how to hold your own Passover. It's got everything in it. So if you'd like to check that out, go to Amazon.com and search for The Power of Passover. And now we return you to your regularly scheduled program. I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we examine the symbol patterns of Scripture to discover how they can apply to us today. This week we continue to read of the travels of Israel as they make their way from Egypt to the foot of Mount Sinai. So far, Israel has had only a few instructions. Three weeks ago, we looked at the very first commands that were given to Israel on their way out of Egypt. Two commands that on the surface seemed disconnected. The commands for the festival of Matzah and the sanctification of the firstborn. And both had instructions for writing the command on your hand and placing them between your eyes. But as we examined both in great detail, we recognized that both demonstrate in a very real way that when Israel left Egypt, they were to disconnect from all that they had done in Egypt. The bread through the idea that the starter dough that everyone used for their bread was to be discarded and started over again. The firstborn through the knowledge that the firstborn were the priests in Egypt. The worship practices of Egypt were to be left behind, and they were to start anew and afresh in their understanding of who God is and how he was to be worshipped. Just after that came new creation. It was accomplished in Israel through the crossing of the Sea of Reeds. A ruach moved over the water. Light and dark were separated. The water split and dry ground was revealed. And man and beast walked in the midst of the water. And on the other side, a Sabbath, a new start that had been alluded to in previous Parshas, was engaged in in a very real way. Death was defeated. The enemy of slavery to the world and sin was destroyed. The people lifted their voices in praise to the great salvation, the power, and the authority of Hashem. But then suddenly, they were alone in a wilderness. No other people, no other nations, no other gods. Only one God, and for an ancient people, this was unheard of. Only one God. Do you know what they called people who worshipped only one God in the ancient Near East? Atheists. They considered them as if they worshipped no gods. It was an unthinkable state of affairs for most cultures. And it is here in the wilderness alone with this one God that the rubber hit the road. Just how far can they trust this new God 
who they know very little about. Oh, sure, he's powerful, but where does that power start and stop? Up to this point, the power has all been directed towards the destruction of Egypt. But they've also seen that he can operate in a way of care and compassion. If Hashem is anything like the gods of Egypt, then this would be impossible. And that fear sits in their heart like a stone. What if he's not capable? What if he's not willing? What if he truly does not care? What if he is just like the gods we left? What if he is so foreign to us as to be completely unrelatable? For that matter, do we want a God who was so vastly different than anything that we've ever known before? And last week we saw that Israel did not make the disconnect that they were told to make. They went through the motions, but they could not leave behind what they thought they knew. They did not start their understanding of God over again. But God worked with it. He allowed them to have improper thoughts about who he was and how he operated. He allowed them to question, what will we drink, when they came upon an undrinkable pool in the way to where he was taking them. He allowed them to accuse, you are bringing us out here to kill us with hunger, when they grew hungry in the wilderness. And he provided for Israel both times to demonstrate who he is and just how far his power extends. And in the midst of these, he sets up tests to discover if the people would listen and obey the next time that he tells them to do something. The fact is that God gives. He gives to those who ask in faith. He will even go so far as to give them what they ask for. But he expects the same in return. He expects obedience when he asks. And so this week we will read about how the people respond to these tests. Will they listen? Will they take what God has revealed to heart and rebuild their understanding of him afresh? Or will they continue to compare him to the gods of Egypt? Will they continue to doubt Hashem and his goodness? Well, let's read this week's Parsha and then discuss this topic. Exodus 16:25 through 17:16. And Moshe said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to Hashem. Today you do not find it in the field. Gather it six days, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there is none. And it came to be that some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather, but they found none. And Hashem said to Moshe, How long shall you refuse to guard my commands and my Torot? See, because Hashem has given you the Sabbath, therefore he is giving you bread for two days on the sixth day. Let each one stay in his place. Do not let anyone go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day, and the house of Israel called its name Manna. And it was like white coriander seed, and the taste of it was like thin cakes made with honey. And Moshe said, This is the word which Hashem has commanded. Fill an omer with it to keep for your generations, so that they see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness, when I brought you out of the land of Mitzrayim. And Moshe said to Aaron, Take a pot and put an omer of manna in it, and set it down before Hashem to keep for your generations. As Hashem commanded Moshe, so did Aharon set it down before the witness to keep. And the children of Israel ate manna forty years until they came to an inhabited land. They ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And an omer is one-tenth of a nephah. And all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of Sin, according to the mouth of Hashem, and camped in Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people strove with Moshe and said, Give us water to drink. And Moshe said to them, Why do you strive with me? Why do you try Hashem? And the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moshe and said, 
Why did you bring us out of Mitzrayim to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Then Moshe cried out to Hashem, saying, What am I to do with this people? Yet a little, and they shall stone me. And Hashem said to Moshe, Pass over before the people, and take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the rod with which you struck the river, and go. See, I am standing before you there, on the rock in Chorev, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people shall drink. And Moshe did so before the eyes of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Masa and Meribah, because of the strife of the children of Israel, and because they tried Hashem, saying, Is Hashem in our midst or not? And Amalek came and fought with Israel and Rephidim. And Moshe said to Yehoshua, Choose for us men to go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I am stationing myself on the top of the hill with the rod of Elohim in my hand. And Yehoshua did as Moshe said to him, to fight with Amalek. And Moshe, Aharon, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And it came to be when Moshe held up his hand that Yisrael prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moshe's hands were heavy. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Yehoshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And Hashem said to Moshe, Write this for a remembrance in the book and recite it in the hearing of Yehoshua, that I shall completely blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under the heavens. And Moshe built an altar and called its name Hashem Nisi. For he said, Because a hand is on the throne of Yah, Hashem is to fight against Amalek from generation to generation. So this Parsha picks up in a very awkward place. In many translations, the opening verse is in the middle of a paragraph. It's not a natural break, and so the initial question that I had when approaching this Parsha, as it's split in the Jewish tradition as we're reading it now, was to ask, why? Why would they split the Parsha here, in the middle of a thought? In the past, we've been able to tease out a reason out of the text, and this week, it's no different. Because there's a thread in chapter 16 that runs through all of chapter 17. Well, at the end of chapter 16, it begins to highlight something of vital import to the hard human heart. In the beginning of chapter 16, Hashem tells Israel that the manna is, in fact, a test. The test being, will they listen and obey when He tells them something? Or will they question and assume and act faithlessly when He gives a command? What is the command in this case? It's simple. Take a break on the Sabbath. Cease what you're doing. Stop relying on your own power to provide for yourself. Trust Hashem to provide your needs and trust Him to know what's best for you. He will give you what you need and He will give you double on the sixth day if it's needed to provide for you to obey on the seventh. He will make a way for you to be capable of obeying. And how do the people respond? Well, in verse 17, some of the people fail the test that Hashem has given them. They go out anyway and search for the manna, even after being commanded not to do so. These people, they react faithlessly, they doubt. And to this, Hashem responds with, How long will you refuse to guard my commands and my Torah? That, that word Torah, that's the Hebrew word Torah, it's the plural form of it. And it, that word really means instructions or teachings and guidance. How long until you keep my instructions? Hashem is saying here, I've given you my Torah as a test to try you. Will you do what I say or not? Hashem then follows up with, I've given you the Sabbath, and I will be sure to provide so that you can obey on the Sabbath. 
If God gives a command, He will ensure your ability to respond. And it's with this realization that the people finally rest. They take the idea of Shabbat in its most literal understanding of the word Shabbat. It's a Hebrew word. It simply means that they ceased. And a command was given to take some of the manna and to store it up in a jar and to keep it. Well, in chapter 17, the people continue on and reach the wilderness of Sin, uh, specifically a place known as Rephidim. Rephidim means a place of rest. It's from the word Rafidah, which means support. In their place of weakness, they need support. First off, let me say that the name of this wilderness of Sin has nothing to do with transgression of covenant. The word sin here is not equivalent to the English word sin. Sin in Hebrew means thorn or clay, a a true wilderness, a place of dirt and plants that are not edible, a true valley of the shadow of death, as it were. In Hebrew, the word that we translate as sin in English is chata'ah, and sin in Hebrew, the one that we're reading now, has nothing to do with chata'ah. Also, the wilderness of sin is where Mount Sinai is found. So please don't confuse the two ideas. When you think of the wilderness of sin, simply understand that this is a wilderness of thorns and parched land, not necessarily a place of transgression or failure to keep covenant. Now with that said, it's in this place of parched land and thorn bushes that the people run out of water once again. And once again, the people strive with Moses. This time, instead of asking, what shall we drink? This time they make demands, give us something to drink. In this question, we see the turning of the tables. Before, Hashem had given commands to test Israel to see if they would obey him and trust him when it doesn't make sense to do so. But now Moses declares to them, why do you try Hashem? Now there's an underlying implication here. God has proved himself faithful over and over again already. He has brought plagues on Egypt He has destroyed Pharaoh and his armies. He has split a sea wide open for you to walk through. He's given you water, not once, but twice already. He's even given you birds to eat, and he rains food on you daily from heaven. He has proven himself to you. And now, in this place, because of a lack of faith, the people turn the tables and begin to test him. He has proven himself already. He has supplied their every need, and yet they question him at his word. And in this place of thirst, they once again make an accusation. They say, you have brought us out here to kill us with thirst. They assume the worst of God because they find themselves in a life-threatening circumstance. And in verse 7, we find out just how they tried Hashem. By saying, is Hashem in our midst or not? From their point of view, they're receiving mixed signals. You see, there's yet another artifact of the Egyptian religion rearing its head. In polytheistic societies, the gods were territorial. The gods of one country had no influence over another. The only way for the gods of one country to be able to work in another was to go to war and defeat the country that they wished to take over. If the gods of Persia wished to have power in the country of Babylon, then Persia had to defeat Babylon. A god could not just exercise influence and power in places that they were not sovereign over. Just as rain god could not help in war, so to a Babylonian god could not help in Egypt. It was simple. It was known that this was how the gods operated, and it was assumed that this was the way that the god of Israel operated. 
What they knew before they came to him took precedence in their mind over everything that they had learned since then. And because of this Egyptian influence, the question creeps in, can he work here? And if we read closely, this was a disingenuous accusation based only on fear. I mean, they're afraid of thirst, their fear of death. Because they were daily receiving food from heaven, they could see the pillar of cloud and fire. They had real intangible ways that God was caring for them on a daily basis, and yet they lacked one thing. And in their lack, the other provisions, it meant nothing. The most immediate need took precedence, and because it was not being met, then, well, in their mind, there's only one conclusion to this. I mean, he's here, we can see him, but because of our situation, then the only answer is that Hashem has evil intent towards us. He wants to kill them in the wilderness, is their thought. Everything that he's done before has been misdirection, and it's been a ploy to get them vulnerable so that he could kill them. He's just like the gods that they left their minds tell them. And they simply could not disconnect from their previous understanding of God. This thought is dangerous, and I addressed it last week. This week, it's not the thought itself that I want to address. This thought in and of itself is a step toward understanding. It is in continuing to allow this thought to have space in your life after God has delivered, after he has proven himself faithful and trustworthy and true. You see, after God has proven himself to you, it's faithless to continue to test, to think that God is giving up on you, that he will not provide for what you need when you need it. But invariably, the question arises, and I've asked this question myself, how is it fair that God can test his people repeatedly, but he will not allow his people to test him? After all, Deuteronomy 6.16 says, Do not try Hashem your God as you tried him in Massah. What we're reading now. What kind of double standard is this? He can test us and allow us to feel hunger and thirst, as Deuteronomy 8 recalls, but we are not allowed to test him? How many of us feel that this is a double standard? But the fact of the matter is that his nature is one that does not change. Once God has proven himself in an area, then to test him is to assume that he has lied or changed his mind or can act in a way that's contrary to his nature. And this demonstrates a hard heart. It is to declare that Hashem can take his own name in vain, that he can work against his character. But humans, humans constantly change. We constantly prove faithless. We constantly change our minds about what's important to us. And Numbers 23.19 says that God is not a man to lie, nor the son of man to repent. He has said, and would he not do it or spoken, and he would not confirm it? Man, man lies. Man changes his mind. But man is not Hashem. Hashem's nature is immutable. It's unchanging. And in all matters, faithful. But we are not, and so he tests us constantly, not just for his benefit, but for our benefit, for us to make decisions about what it is that we believe. We must be tested in order to grow and for us to discover our own faults and then to overcome them. But to test him after he's proven himself faithful is faithlessness in ourselves. To describe to him qualities that are not his, to treat him as just a human who can change his mind. 
or as any other god, to treat him as fickle. He is not any other god. He is Hashem. He is the one and only constant in this universe of constant flux and change. And so it is that God takes one more chance to prove himself. He commands that the elders of the people go with Moses to Horeb. Horeb, that's a, another name from Mount Sinai, which and Horeb means desert. And it's here that Hashem commands Moses to strike the rock, and water will flow out of this dead and desolate rock. And this will be done before the eyes of the elders of Israel, witnesses to the miracle that can then carry the message to the people who would not have been able to see with their own eyes as they had with the manna. Then, as they continue on after the hunger and thirst have been satisfied, and after they've made accusations and had their fears fall flat, suddenly they're under attack. Amalek, a nation that has not been unheard of before, and now turns their attention towards Israel. Now, if we turn to Deuteronomy once again, this time in chapter 25, we learn a bit more about this event in Deuteronomy 25, 17 through 19. It says, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Mitzrayim, how he met you on the way and attacked your back, all the feeble ones in your rear, when you were tired and weary, and he did not fear Elohim. Therefore it shall be when Hashem your Elohim has given you rest from your enemies all around, in the land which Hashem your Elohim has given you to possess as an inheritance, that you blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under the heavens. Do not forget. When Amalek attacked Israel, he attacked their back. He attacked the weak and the weary and the tired. Amalek didn't attack the strong. He didn't attack the front. He exploited their weakness. And where did Amalek attack? In Rephidim, the place without water. While Israel was resting from their long journey, while they were weary and weak, and while they were without water, and while attacks on their faith were coming from within the camp, it's then that Amalek attacked Israel from outside of the camp. This is the way of the enemy. You see, God will lead us to places of need and want and weariness. Why? To test us. And in these places of weakness, the enemy will then attack. This is a methodology we discover in the enemies of God's people throughout Scripture. A Second Samuel 17, 1-2 records, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Please let me choose 12,000 men, and let me arise and pursue David tonight, and come upon him while he is weary and weak. And I shall make him afraid, and all the people who are with him shall flee, and I shall strike the king alone. Now this is just after the civil war in Israel, where Absalom has set himself up as king, and David has run from Jerusalem. David is away from his strength here. He's alone in the wilderness and running for his life. He is weak and alone, and it's at this time that Ahithophel counsels Absalom to destroy David. Again, we see this methodology in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 4. Yeshua fasts for 40 days, and it is only after he is weak and weary that the adversary attacks him and tempts him. Matthew 4, 2-3, And after having fasted forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the trier came to him and said, If you are the son of Elohim, command that these stones become bread. The enemy will rarely attack you while you are strong. He will attack you in the midst of your weakness. 
And it's in this place of weakness and weariness and while under attack that Moses calls on Yehoshua to choose men to go and to fight on behalf of Israel. Now, this is the first time that we read of Joshua, this mighty man of valor who becomes the successor to Moses upon his death. Joshua proves himself worthy time and time again, as we will read in upcoming chapters and books, and he becomes Moses' second in command. Joshua is himself a figure of Messiah in his second coming as the warrior king who will lead the people into the land of promise. And here, at the time of Israel's greatest weakness, it's Joshua who fights for them on the battlefield. And Moses goes to the mountaintop and raises his hands. Now, what happens here is one of the most confusing stories that we read of in Scripture. As long as Moses kept his hands up, Israel won. And if his arms dropped, Israel lost. What? What is it that we're supposed to learn from this? Uh, lift your hands? Toward what end? Is it simply putting his hands in the air that made the difference? Well, to understand this, we have to understand what lifting hands means. It's a sign. It's a symbol. Is it a sign of praise? Is it a sign of victory? I mean, I've heard a lot of dubious teachings regarding this act. And as I was encountering it in my study for this lesson, I wanted to ensure that I had the right idea of what exactly is going on here. Well, to figure that out, we should look to Scripture and see what it has to say about lifting hands. 1 Kings eight fifty four, And it came to be, when Solomon had ended praying all his prayer and supplication to Hashem, that he rose up from before the altar of Hashem, from kneeling on his knees, with his hands spread up to the heavens. 1 Timothy 2, 8 So I resolve that men pray everywhere, lifting up hands that are holy without wrath and disputing. Nehemiah 8, 6 and Ezra blessed Hashem, the great Elohim. Then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped Hashem with faces to the ground. Psalm 28, 2. Hear the voice of my prayers when I cry to you, when I lift up my hands towards your holy speaking place. Ezra 9, 5. And at the evening offering, I rose from my affliction, and having torn my garments and my robe, I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to Hashem my God. Or Lamentations 2.19 Arise, cry out in the night. At the beginning of the watches, pour out your heart like water before the face of Hashem. Lift your hands toward Him for the life of your young children who languish from hunger at the head of every street. Now this is only a small sample of the times that we read of lifting hands in Scripture. But nearly all of them are in connection to making supplication before Hashem lifting hands and asking him to do something on your behalf. Rather than reading of Moses lifting his hands and ascribing to it whatever motive suits us, let's use Scripture to interpret Scripture. What is Moses doing here before the people? Well, if we understand lifting hands properly, and if this idiom is the same here as in other places in Scripture, then Moses is praying in this action and he's asking God to fight for Israel. He is acting as intercessor between God in heaven and the warriors on the ground below. And when the intercessor's prayers faltered, the people faltered, the warriors faltered, and the enemy won. As long as the intercessor continued to make supplication, however, the warriors were victorious, the people were victorious, and the enemy was defeated. Now there's so much that could be said about this, but the baseline is this. Without prayer and supplication, 
we will be destroyed. Without turning to God to be our salvation, we will be overcome by the enemy. But as long as we seek his deliverance and salvation, he will fight for us. We must allow Yeshua to fight for us. We must seek only to lift our hands in supplication to the Father. You see, prayer and supplication, it's not something that can be casually done or not based on your personal preference. Prayer is something that we must all engage in at all times. Prayer is what protects us in times of weakness, distress, and attack. And it is this that will cause us to be victorious in the face of both hardship and attack. If we add all of these up, we'll see an example that we all too often get in the Torah. What not to do in relationship to God. How did Israel react when they found themselves in weakness? We saw this last week and just two weeks ago, just beyond the sea. They reacted with accusations towards God, with questions about his character and his intentions. They entertained that thought of the enemy, that Hashem is holding out on you. He has something that he could give you, but that he's not, and he won't. And if he has something that could make your life better and he's keeping it from you, then is he trustworthy? And if he is untrustworthy, then he's not worthy of worship, honor, and praise. In the beginning, the people were reacting in fear. They were acting in ignorance of the true nature of God. Now, though, now there's no excuse. They have no reason to doubt him because he has proven that he will care for them. He has proven that he is faithful. And yet, they doubt. Why? Because the gods of Egypt were fickle and faithless. They could not break away from that idea. So how about you? Do you doubt God's willingness or his ability to help you? Has he provided for and delivered you in the past? Then you've been shown his true nature. Then you've doubted that nature in the face of difficulty. Doing so is to put God to the test, and that's something that shouldn't be done. It's a sign of an unstable mind. And that's where all of these stories find their connecting thread. With the manna, a command was given to store up the manna in a jar, to place the manna next to the witness, to keep the manna for their generations. In the same way with the fight against Amalek, Moses is told to write down the story of their victory as a remembrance. And with the water, the elders were called to witness the miracle, and the place is given a name that reflects the attitudes of the people there, Masa and Meribah. Masa meaning temptation, Meribah meaning strife and contention. Each of these things was intended to be a reminder to Israel of a very real truth. Not just a truth of the nature of God, but also a truth of human nature. God provides. He protects. He is the banner that we are all united under. Humans, on the other hand, become contentious and strive with each other when under pressure and when facing temptation. Hashem Nisi. God is the banner who fights for you, and He is the banner under whom you fight. He is the King. And in this way, Israel is given very real items with which to memorialize their journey. Not just their journey, but in order to remember the very nature of God in their midst. These episodes become more than stories. They become testimonies and witnesses to the name of God. 
to his character, his reputation, his authority, power, nature, and all that is part of him. And this is the reason why our testimonies are so important to tell. They reveal God's name to all who hear. Whether they accept them or not, that's up to them. Our testimony is the story that gives us the ability to stand when things get rough. They give us that reminder of how God has acted in the past and a reminder that He does not change. He will deliver just as He always has. In Revelation 12, we read of the weapons of those who overcome the enemy. In verse 11, And they overcame Him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their witnesses. And they did not love their lives to the death. How do they overcome? The blood of the Lamb, Passover, which we just read. The word of their witness, these events that Hashem commands to be recorded as witnesses, not of themselves or their lives, but rather as a witness of what God has done for them. And armed with these reminders, we can face anything. If you're of Hashem, if you are of Yeshua, you have these reminders. You have the blood of the Lamb, and you have a testimony You can look back and know that God is faithful. We can know that He is true, that He is the unchanging, and He is the Lord of all creation. He is the God who gives life, and the God whom we seek to know as we seek life. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Darish Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.